Hello and welcome to the debug log number 75. Big episode. Uh, and appropriately enough, we're going to talk about a big topic. It's mythic structure in game design. And as much of a mouthful as that is, it's pretty simple. Um, it's basically centered around the hero's journey, which is a common thing in storytelling, really pioneered by Joseph Campbell. And we'll get into that. But it, it talks about how human beings, when they experience a narrative work of art, they expect certain milestones and things to happen and that resonates with them in certain positive ways and you know there's a big industry of how you can formulize Hollywood movies and see that a lot of the big ones follow the structure especially ones like adventure stories do um and we thought it'd be interesting to take those concepts and apply them see how they apply to games and it's not a one for one but a lot of people like with Nicola Zaro's Four Keys to Fun um, and then Jesse Schell in The Art of Game Design, he has a really great chapter on interest curves, and he even talks about Hero's Journey in that book too. So a lot of people have applied those concepts to things that aren't just narrative, but they are just experiences, because that can be a narrative in and in of itself. So really cool discussion. We break down some of these cool, awesome ideas that you could apply to your game. And if not even that, just a way to analyze where people are engaging with your game, and more importantly, where they're falling off. So hopefully you can improve those said areas. So, cool discussion. So without further ado, this is the Debug Log, episode 75. I thought that interview you did with Zach was really good. Oh, you listened to it? Yeah. Yeah, that bastard. I told him not to, too. Well, Bean didn't tell me, so... <laughs> so <laughs> you little child. That's too funny. See how far my word goes, man. <laughs> I waited like a week. Don't do it. Uh, well, you know about that. <laughs> You're listening to The Debug Log, a podcast about game development. My name's Andrew Curry. I'm Obino Opara. And I'm Zach Schneider. All right. Tonight, we got three musketeers. We're going to talk about... I I don't know. I haven't named this episode yet. I'm calling it Heroic Game Design now. And I'll get into what that means in a bit. But first, Obino, you have an iTunes review to read, right? Of course I do. This one is from Codesmith K, who titled it Awesome. One of the top three podcasts about the game industry. <laughs> Full <laughs> stop. <laughs> and that's that's what he had to say, and, and we love it. So much appreciated, uh, Codesmith K. Um, who is Codesmith K? Who are you? Not anyway. A of, not a man of many words, but when you do yeah. speak, it means something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, we just uh, appreciate all the iTunes reviews we are continually getting. Uh, keep writing them. They always and will continue to help us grow our community and grow our reach as far as the podcast is going. So thank you very much. Yes. All right. Tonight, we're going to talk about Heroes. Obina knows about this. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what's that reference? I don't even get it. I don't know. It's just about heroes. This is about the. Um, th- th- this came about because of Jesse Shell's awesome book, The Art of Game Design. We had him on the show, um, and if you've because of that episode, um, if you've gotten into that book, that's awesome. That's great. Um, he's a really smart guy. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon. He's worked as an Imagineer at Disney and all these other things. He has his own company now. So he like just downloaded all of his game design knowledge into this book, which is super long. It's a super big book. It's like, it, but it's it's. I mean, I almost say it's like too big, just because it's like a it's like a as big as a textbook, but it doesn't read like a textbook. But it it's every chapter is could be an episode of the show, and I kind of I'm determined to do that, I guess now. Um, <laughs> But one of my favorite chapters of that book, and we mentioned it briefly at the end, like that was the last thing we talked about really quickly because I just had to bring it up, was this chapter on something he calls interest curves. Um, and that's about like kind of keeping your player engaged. And we kind of hit on a little bit of this topic with Nicola Zar with the four keys of fun, right. you know, having like easy fun, hard fun, like these loops in gaming and stuff. Um, so I, I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about it in – with a frame of reference in talking about a thing in narrative, usually what's it called in the film industry is called the hero's journey. Have you guys ever heard about that? Yes, I'm quite familiar with the hero's journey. Oh, you are? Why? Yeah. <laughs> Explain it to me. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's just like the, um, 
the idea that you were kind of following this uh, protagonist throughout his course of where you know it's like the protagonist has has an issue or has some some conflict within himself or within the world or within i don't know a group of people that he tries to resolve uh throughout this journey and basically the story arc is about this hero overcoming his his uh, i guess conflict just uh, yeah just the kind of quest and the quest yes. correct me if i'm wrong andrew but i think it has like at least the, the film one has like peaks and valleys, right? So right. there's up moments and then there's down moments. So it's like, okay, this moment they figure something great out and then the down moment is crap. It didn't work. I got to come up with a new right. plan or something right. like that. Yeah, it came from a guy named Joseph Campbell. He was like a comparative mythologist back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And I mean, I don't know. He's he's older. He's, he's not alive anymore, sadly. But he, um, I've read a bunch of his books. And one of the, his like seminal books was called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it's a cool title, meaning that and what he is, his basic thesis was that all throughout history, all these myths and legends and folklore from religion to all these other different types of cultures are basically telling the same story. You know, they all have stories of a flood. They all have stories of just different types of thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And some people will go, that's blasphemous to say that. But his point was that, no, these are all valid uh, stories and why they are all similar is because they represent um, parts of your human life. Like... The idea that he had the basic hero's journey is that you live in an ordinary world. You have a call to adventure. You know, you might refuse the call. You have a mentor. You know, you cross the threshold into this unknown world. You go on an adventure and you kind of get the spoils and you come back and you share that knowledge. It's basically it got really popular in the seventies because George Lucas used it as a basis for Star Wars, and Star Wars follows it <laughs> to a T. Right? You have Luke and he meets Obi Wan and he goes. To the cantina and he's he's past the point of no return and they go on adventures and he comes back so it's a, it got into popular culture that way and in hollywood basically took on that idea because they, they some people just cynically use it as a formula right because they're like oh this is how i make a star wars <laughs> so i make one of them star wars movies um and but you're right zach that what it represents it's it, i mean deeply they he talks about it in the aspect that it represents like um, emotional and big milestones in people's lives and that's why people respond to it and they feel like it's the natural progression of a story but it also involves those peaks and valleys right um, and, mm-hmm. and then people talk about this even outside the hero's journey with just how most movies and TV shows are made they're like a three act structure where you have the beginning you have an exposition then you have an inciting action which is the thing that sets off like oh my god this person got murdered you know <laughs> or something happens and then you go into a second act, which is the meat of it, where people are kind of solve it, and then it kind of moves into the third act of climax and resolution. And these are common things you can pick apart. This is for um, any film anal- analyzing class or any kind of literature class. You can pick apart these things. And really, the, the basis of this is that people like to experience narratives in that way. And it, just talking about it in a narrative sense with stories, it, it impacts you, and you feel involved in no matter what the setting, what the premise of it is, you feel like you're a part of it. And it's a really quick shortcut sometimes, you know, to get people interested in what you're doing. Um, so when you talk about this in games, say, I want to include this in games, your first inclination would be to say, hey, that's cool, I'll just make my story in my game like that. And you can do that, right? I mean, you can have an adventure game or you can have a very tightly um, structured game where your story is very linear and you have this story that's a hero's journey. Um, and it's kind of hard to do because you have like a 10-hour story, so you really have to stretch it out sometimes, too. But you can do that. The problem with games is that's not usually how games work, you know, if they're good games all the time. So if they're not, you, games are interchangeable. There's branching paths. There's, you know, it, it involves player interaction. So the question is, how do you apply those ty- that type of idea? If people like this structure in a story, how does that apply to games? Um and the that's big, actually go ahead. Sorry, yeah, that's actually like the first question that popped in mind when we when you started the episode and talking about like this heroic uh, aspect of game design and using this hero journey as a framework. In that, like, it seems like in order to be successful at implementing this, and you'll you'll correct us, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> obviously, but is you'd have to be a great storyteller to leverage this kind of framework. All right, so you can use that premise basically when you have a narrative game, but what happens when you have a game like Tetris or you know whatever Peggle or something? Mm-hmm. How does 
how does that innate idea that human beings want that kind of ebb and flow like Zach talked about in a game like that? And that's where, well, first of all, the, the big premise I have is that no matter if you're not, if you're not telling a story, you're still telling a story. Because my whole premise, we talked about it in the UX episode, we talked about it in other times, is that any kind of interactive experience that takes place over time, any kind of experience that takes place over time is still a story. Whether it has characters and a plot, you're still giving somebody an experience. You know, we talked about Apple being famous for making the unboxing of their things an experience, right? Because right? that mm-hmm. was all part of the narrative of... That's why people are like cultish about that or were in the day because you're like, I got this thing and it's mine. And I opened it and it was amazing and now I have it. And it's like, that's a narrative somebody tells themselves. So I'm just saying, I played the Halo theme song the first time I opened my Apple laptop. That's good. It was an experience. <laughs> but so, yeah, so that's the deal. It's like, I think no matter what you're doing, if you're telling a, if you're giving somebody an experience that takes place over time, that's a story, that's a narrative. And they're going to experience something. So we have to have some kind of framework to deal with that and make people interested just like people would use the hero's journey to make people interested in the narrative. And that's where this idea, like I said, the Jesse Show had of interest curves come in. Um, and this came again from his book, The Art of Game Design. And he uses a couple examples in the book, which are really interesting. The first he talks about, he said this, that the whole book, The Art of Game Design, is, is a book of lenses. And he has like 160 or something lenses in that book, right? Where they're just... He breaks down the chapters into these things called lenses, which are just different ways to look at the design of your game. Like, look at it through the story. Look at it through the characters. Look at it through multiplayer. You know, just exercises to kind of stimulate you as you're making your game. It's a really cool structure just because it doesn't um, hamstring you into any kind of formal system. It just makes you question yourself all the time. That's all we talk about on the show. But he talks about... This idea of interest curves was his first lens he probably ever experienced as a person because he was like a kid or a teenager or something, and he started working as a magician, right? Mm-hmm. And he was he worked at like some fair or something, and he did this little magic show, and he had like different tricks, and he had a bigger trick and all these other tricks, and he came off stage, and the older musicians like, yeah, it went pretty good. He's like, he, but he was unsatisfied. He's like, well, they liked the one part of it, and then they didn't like the rest, and they didn't like the ending at all. He's like, well, let me look at your script, like, you know, your structure, what you have there. And basically, the guy said, let me just edit this for you. And he rearranged the sections. He's like, well, that was your best trick. Absolutely. So how about we end with that trick, you know? And how about that was a pretty good trick? How about we start with that one, and then we kind of intersperse. So basically, he was restructuring it to have what he calls interest curves, meaning that as somebody has experienced something like you, like you have peaks and valleys, like Zach said, of interest where it's like, this is a really cool part. Okay. Now we're going to take a break for a little while. Okay. Now this is a really cool part. Now we're gonna take a break for a while. And then the idea that it starts off nice and then it kind of ends with the best part. Um, and that's a, that's a, I don't a lot of, a lot of times these game design concepts seem, I don't know if it's me. They seem obvious when you just say it out loud when we were saying it. Right I don't now. know. Actually, <laughs> you know? What, what, when you were, like the concept seems obvious, but nobody ever thinks of it in that right. way when they're looking at their own. But game. as you were explaining it and just talking about the ebbs and flows and ups and downs of uh, game design, what I was starting to like think about was like usually I feel like the game developer is kind of like laser focused on having an experience that's almost always on climax, that's you know always engaging, always interesting, and always you know you know always like at the peak of entertainment at 11 yeah it's always right? at 11 yeah, it's so it's call of duty exactly like that, where right? you always want you kind of trying to get to the pull out the heartstrings or whatever it is uh at the player constantly so it's kind of interesting where this is i don't know do you actually this is more of a discussion or questions like do you feel like it's better to have more ebbs and flows or i guess we'll maybe discover that as well or is it better to you know is it also good to have be laser focused on constantly delivering action and climax and your best trick. I think that I think the ebbs and flows are actually really really important, especially with with games because what happens is when you have like, you know, this this really intense story or uh, for instance even if it's not a story and it's just like a first person shooter and you're shooting at a bunch of enemies, if every enemy is that big enemy, you get desensitized to that big right. enemy. But when you have these, you know, big enemies uh, interspersed between, you know, groups of smaller enemies or maybe traveling through beautiful landscapes, things like that, it makes those intense moments feel that much more intense. 
because it's it's bordered by those those kind of lulls and activity and that just goes back to i guess what andrew was talking about earlier just like the it's like the rhythm of our user or the personal human experience is just having those ups and downs that actually yeah right yeah the so i was also gonna say like the my my example the first person shooter was is also still a great example of when this story uh story writing technique comes into gameplay like not as story uh, not as like a cutscene, but as like action within a game right so it's not just okay well this is how i'm going to deliver my story it's this is how i'm going to deliver my gameplay experience right and that's the kind of the idea that i mean if you take an example like um bungie for instance when they brought they made a bunch of games marathon and myth was that the other game they made like they they were a mac uh computer game company which is strange to think about now they're the microsoft you know poster child now but they made a bunch of mac games they originally made halo for the mac and then i guess bill gates got wind of and he's like you got to be on this new thing we have called xbox (laughs) and they paid him a bunch of money and they went over and you can you know you can say what i'll say they have great controls and they really figured out first person controls on a console for the first time they have you know awesome like this big cinematic feel they have music like zach likes to play when he opens his laptop um, but the big thing, the big concept those game designers invented, and this is the term they always talked about, is 30 seconds of fun. They talked about a lot of games you play, and it's just like, oh, I don't, it was just, it's either random or it's too much or not enough, and it's boring. They had this concept that you want to get in these engagements, and it, it plays out if you think about your experience playing Halo games, even Destiny for that matter, right? Is that you mm-hmm. have an encounter, and it's about 30 seconds. You kill three or four or five people, and there might be a big person that takes longer, of course, with a boss that takes longer, but... You have these many little uh, interest curves in that experience, and then you have a down break, and you get to walk around and experience and just kind of cool off. But they really, uh, not, I'm not a pioneer, a lot of games do this, but they really talked about and got out front about talking about this idea they wanted 30 seconds of fun because they thought that was a nice little nugget of interest and engagement for a player, and that's what they can engage with, and that's they could string a bunch of those along and make it a compelling campaign, basically. So they're a big example of using that just for... That 30 seconds fund had nothing to do with the story. It had nothing to do with the plot. It has to do with literally the mechanics moment to moment. Right. Um, and so you talk about that with an interest curve. Let's say you could, that's the thing. I, I put this at the end of this outline, but we'll mention this at the beginning. There's interest curves. The idea of this can be totally fractal. It can nest within itself infinitely, I guess, right? Because you have the idea this is where that four keys of fun idea comes in where she talked about the easy fun the hard fun and was like the social fun and stuff like that the idea that you have loops looping in on each other so you have a game you have a level and you have a challenge you know and vice versa even going deeper than that even just the the mechanics of playing with it these are all little tiny loops which are in themselves interest curves and are fun to play with right so um, that works in itself. And so the idea, let's just talk about just the interest curve, like what, what a typical good interest curve would be is the idea that you would start off with a bang, mm-hmm. right? That you, whether you're playing, a, like that's how, like a big James Bond opening in a movie or something, you go, this is cool. It's not the best part of the movie, right? You don't want to blow it all at the beginning. <laughs> but it's something that it, it really needs to like be, hook you in and get you going. Uh we can use uh, uh, Halo uh, as a good example of this too. What was it Halo Three with the bomb jumping out of the ship? On oh the, yeah, on yeah, the yeah exactly. Destiny or not Destiny, but Division right. had another like. I think they pretty much all do. Even like Call of Duties, they always have like this intro movie that you are a part of. Yeah, the hook. Yeah. The hook, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're like, whoa, that's cool. And also, I forgot to mention right before that, even before it starts, you'd have you would have an initial initial interest that gets you like it's about space marines and aliens. You're like, oh, cool. Part because even that, which it's weird, even the marketing is part of this experience you have with the thing. Like, even the division, you're like, oh, this is a, just hearing about that game is part of your experience, and that's the initial entrance. And then, once you download that game, like you said, you need to see that movie that's like, oh, I, oh, this is cool, I like this now, I want, mm-hmm. I want to do this. Um, and then inside of that, that's where it gets murky, and that's where it, it kind of the interest curve model diverges. The hero's journey represents specific points in something, whereas a game, it doesn't necessarily need to do that, but it need, maybe store-wise it might, you might want to play with that, but just as far as game mechanics, then after that, you're going 
in just ebbs and flows, like Zach said, that kind of sometimes maybe crescendoing, you know, getting a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, and you're like, you have a big moment, and it kind of has a little bit of just exploring and cutscenes, and like the Gears of War games, you do this big thing, and then you're walking and talking. It's for like a while. introducing maybe new bosses, you're saying, or new mechanics, smaller mechanics within the bigger, larger game. To yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just like how Portal does it, and it'll teach you how to play the game, and then you have a little bit. Oh, now I'm walking to the next level, and they're time to talk to me. I'm getting a little bit of story, and then now I have to. Now I get challenged again. So it's like it. It seems like, but if you analyze it in that way, and we'll get to why you analyze something that way, it seems obvious when you play those games. But it's helpful to do that. And then the the obvious thing is at the end of whatever that loop is, whether it's a really tiny loop or it's a big loop. That you would have a big moment, like the big climax, and then a, like a resolution of denouement where you say, okay, that's what that meant. So the moment, the, the point of it is, like he talked about in that magic show where he talks about whatever, is that your last moment is the best moment. You know, like you have a movie, you want the big action scene in the end to be better. A lot of times we hear this in movies where it's like, well, the first scene was like the best in the movie, and then they never lived up to it, you know? Right. So you don't want that. You want the first to hook you, and then it kind of goes down and starts building back up to the climax. So that would work in gameplay. That works in, you could say that works in Tetris, you know? That inherently works in Tetris because the mechanics build on each other because you start slowly, and this is fun. And then as that gets upper in levels, like it literally is building in complexity and building in tension as it gets higher and higher and higher. And by the end, you're like, oh, no, 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 get it. And then you yeah. die. And that's the climax of Tetris, right? Of the experience of that loop. Um, so that's interesting. So if you apply those mechanics, and like he says, like you experience this, you might not think of it, but if you put it on your game or if you analyze these games and literally do like a line chart, of like, this is the beginning, it was really cool, then it went down, then it went up to this cool thing, then it went down, then it went up to this cool thing. If you if you apply that to your game or your experience, say you have a narrative, say you just have a mechanical experience, what you might find is lulls and kind of dips or highs that aren't supposed to be there. Like he mentions the other story that he got to at this point is that when he was an Imagineer, which is, that's a pretty good humble brag for a job, <laughs> like designing Disney World rides and stuff. He was saying that he... He was designing like an Aladdin ride or something, I guess. So this is like in the mid '90s or something, and he um he basically did this on one of his rides. They had this design and they kind of had it planned out and kind of I guess a test of it, and it wasn't working. And then he put this concept to it. And he basically did a line chart to maybe they, and you can do this by user testing too. You can say, did you like this part? Did you like like rate these different aspects of the game and see if you know? But he made a line chart of the parts and he realized there was a flat section in the middle. <clears throat> And so you, the point of that is to look at that and go, well, what what am I doing here? It's like it's good as an analysis of your game to say, do I need to add parts in there or just cut it completely? Right. And basically, what he did in that example is just cut it completely. And it's like now it's cool. Better. So you're saying, so it doesn't. Initially, I thought you know this taking the structure on or looking at this framework was more of a a pre-production thing, something you do on the onset and say, hey, I need to plan my game around this hero's journey. But you're saying this, this could also be used, you know. I guess what's posthumously or just after the game is, you know, you've worked on it and it's in production and you just find, you can look at it and analyze your game and find pieces where you can either improve or I guess reduce excitement if, if need be to help manage. Well, yeah, because if you think about it, just as a game designer standpoint, I mean, that's what Zach and I are going through with our game where we rework systems and talk about them and then rechange them. And we talk about how, what that means you can get, we talked about this here the last week, you can get really caught up as a game designer in making systems work together really perfectly. Like, oh, but what if that worked with that and that was like that? And oh, that means like it dovetails perfectly, mm-hmm. but you're never thinking of how the user experiences it. You're just doing this in an abstract sense. Right. So you're just saying all these systems will make sense. And then, and then you get into a game. Like, I think I love Skyrim. I think it's a great game. I think that game is shit <laughs> if you start off as a new player. Like if you'd have nothing, if you've never heard of an RPG, you're just like, what? You just started me here, and I don't know what dexterity is. I don't, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They don't actually build you into that. Like you have to have a little bit of RPG D and D slash knowledge to understand. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to go to these towns and talk to these people and do right. this thing. That's cool. Makes okay. sense. Yeah. And and I think that's I've always said I've it's one of my favorite games of the last generation, but. I also think I have, like I've said on the show before, I've had a lot of friends that are into games, but not necessarily super nerdy like myself or Zach or me. He's like, where they go, oh, I know what that means. I'll do that. They just go, I tried that game. It sucks. Like, oh, but you'd love it if you actually understood. Somebody guided you into that process. 
Mm-hmm. And that goes into user experience stuff, but it also goes into, you know, minute to minute engagement with systems and stuff. Like we talked about Portal. Portal is a masterclass in game design and this type of idea because it gradually teaches you what you need to do over time, like subtly through the level design, through the mechanics, through the stuff. They keep teaching you piece by piece the skills you need and by the end of it you're outside of that system outside of the test and you're using the skills you learn to to traverse the real world and it's amazing and and for the record if you haven't ever played portal i didn't spoil it there i kind of like no no you're you're still you're good but what i'm saying is if you want to be a game designer or if you are a game designer you haven't played portal go buy it play it five dollars and play it it's it's literally one of the best best games I've ever played. And I played it right like I guess my senior year in college and I was like oh I my first like ten minutes of the game I was like, Oh man, I was kinda disappointed because I, I thought it was just gonna be a crappy puzzle I hate game. Puzzle games too, and yeah. then as and then as it built up, I was like, This game is genius and I beat the game and for the record this is just Portal Two. I didn't play the original Portal oh, until after the... I played the first No. Oh, okay. So I played the uh, Portal Two and in, in Portal Two once you complete it, you unlock like a second mode where you can play it with developer commentary, and they'll literally walk you through the levels and explain what they were thinking, and they'll explain the process of going through and and teaching the the player these mechanics. And it's like it, it was it was a revelation in, in my uh, in my career. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm, there's games that I like more, and I like that I say are more of my favorite games, but that that Portal, the first original Portal experience is my best gameplay experience. Just like The Matrix isn't my favorite movie, but that was the best movie-going experience I ever had because it blew my mind at the time. Um, Portal, I played, it's like four hours. I played it in one sitting, and it and mm-hmm. it blew my mind just because I hate puzzle games, I hate that stuff, but the way it gradually introduces you to that stuff and then flips the script on that, I don't spoil anything, but like... You, it really just teaches you how to play the game. You can start as a complete beginner and get into it, and it goes to such heights that are just incredible. Um, yeah. And yeah, you can watch a bunch of. There's a bunch of videos on YouTube analyzing how they kind of telegraph um, mechanics through the level design and the visuals, and they show you like this. This marker is halfway through the screen, so you realize you should jump halfway. You know, so it's really next level stuff if you look at the design of that game. Um. But yeah, for instance, that's what I'm saying. The interest curve kind of, in that instance, it ties into the difficulty level, which is part of this too. And the difficulty level ties into interest because if something's too difficult, it's not interesting to you anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? So they really, they ebb and flow the challenge and they slowly bring it up to a point where then the story starts becoming interesting, then the challenges become interesting. Now you're invested and now you're hooked. Just like any good movie or any good thing, you if you if you kind of ease people into that with the user experience, but you kind of tell them a story and you know guide them through that, then it becomes much more um, interesting. Um. So yeah. So like I said, this 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 concept <laughs> when you start thinking about this and you think about the hero's journey, the hero's journey doesn't like I said. I don't want to confuse anybody. It doesn't map directly to this interest curve thing, but it's the same sort of concept. The interest curve thing is much more generic. Right, because the ebbs and flows in the middle can be whatever. It's just the idea that you want to have ebbs and flows. You don't want to have enemies just coming at you, unless that's your game and they amp up, and that's part of the game. But most games, you want an ebb and flow. You want it whether it's like I said, Tetris, whether it's something else. I mean, even Tetris, that idea, it doesn't really ebb down, but it, it increases. Right? It doesn't start off putting you at level right at the top and then ask you to make it go down. Right? It makes you kind of build up to that point and you get used to it. And this is the same for everything. It's the same for songs, you know. Songs have verses and bridges and choruses and stuff, and they climax like ah, and that's a big moment. This is the same thing for like having a conversation with people. Same thing for, like roller coasters. We talked about this on Jesse Shell's episode. Everything. I almost think that everything that takes place in time that we experience as humans that takes place in time, you know, from a TV show to a book to whatever it is, it needs to whether it follows a hero's journey or not. It does need to have some sort of path where you're not just like. That's what people have the complaints when they watch a show or read a book or have just like, this is boring. This sucks. <laughs> you know, it's like, you've got to wait. Just give it 40 hours, dude. And then you're into so, it. Actually, <laughs> it I want to step back because uh, I don't know you talking about like movies, songs, conversations, et cetera. It just reminded me of and the difficulty thing reminded me of like, um, like, is it and like just hero's journey and that aspect of it where 
I guess the ebbing is like where I was like, let me get my question out. But is it like for games, do you should you expect or should you want your player to fail or have like the ebb being a failure in some degree? Like like Tetris, you mentioned there's a there's almost a definitive time you're going to fail or what's that one ski free remember from on PC where you would just like roll down the slopes and then eventually the, oh, yeah. ski the Yeti would uh would kill you so anyway do you think it's like a failing is part of it and difficulty like making difficulty level in such a way where it's not there might there should be a point where you fail well it depends i mean if your game is run based like that you know if you have a game that's like a roguelike or like a tetris sometimes that ebb and flow is the fact is the time between the games right because if you think your skill level is getting higher you're getting more knowledge of the game so you're going to go like you're providing the extra bump at the next iteration just because you've learned more and you're you're going higher you're you're raising the tension in a weird natural way and that's why games are fascinating because in a procedural type of way you can generate those ebbs and flows but yeah but if it's not like that if, if the gameplay the if the outer loop of the game is much larger and you're not supposed to die then it needs to be like in i would think it needs to be like in mission structure so if you do a mission then you can go explore for a while you know that type of thing um even the moment to moment combat stuff it's like when you play games a lot of times enemies don't all attack you at once right you play a batman arkham knight game like i talked about in the last few episodes mm-hmm. they don't just like in the movies if, if 10 they guys just attack batman at once he <laughs> yeah, would die exactly. yeah but they do that on per- you know because it's fun it's more interesting that way it would just be completely yeah. impossible but the reason that happens because it's like a conversation you're having with all these people and they're kind of attacking you. I love that uh, Arkham Knight reference because it, it's like he they just like wait around until you combo them. <laughs> they're just like in their yeah, idle in the poses. real life somebody would just pull out a gun and shoot you while you're doing <laughs> like, that. Come just on, like, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's too. Funny. That's kind of the whole thing. But I mean, they do have guns in that game, but people are always like, "I'm fiddling with it. I'm fiddling with it." And you can <laughs> kick them and stuff. Like, but yeah. <laughs> But that's what I mean, though. It makes it you makes you feel like a badass when you play that. Cause you're like, yeah, because. But honestly, if they just felt like Hull holding you down and jumping on top of you, then they probably could <laughs> in real life, I guess you know. But it makes it more interesting, more fun. Just and it, that's why this is hard. It's not. This isn't like a formula per se. You have to analyze what type of game you have. Like like you said, with a story game, you can have mission structures and overall plot, and it can be narrative based, but also mechanical based, and like. We said with the Halo thing, they have 30 seconds of fun, and then you're just kind of traveling, walking. And then 30 seconds of more fun, there's another encounter. Um, yeah, and uh, you were talking about adventure games, too. Like, what you could do is, if, in your map, if it's purely adventure-based, you can guarantee that you get that, that dispersal or that, that curve by, you know, displacing your, your interesting items a certain distance away from each other. Right. So you, you guarantee that there's going to be a path there where they're not really encountering anything really awesome, and then all of a sudden, here's an awesome thing over here, or here's an awesome thing a mile and a half down the road or something like that. Right. It's the same way they, they like, uh, you would put, like when you watch a TV show that's on networks that's made for commercials, they make exciting moments of those commercial breaks for a point. They do it to keep you interested, so you keep watching past the commercials. But the structure of that keeps you going through the story. And it's the same way if you make any, like, you know, I know Abina's probably, you probably made mixtapes too, like I have in the past. <laughs> like, it's the same thing, you know what I mean? Like, as you're making a mix for somebody, like, you want to have an ebb and flow to that. So I'm going to start off with this one. I'm going to go into that. Like, it, it's like if you put together a show, a comedy show, any kind of open mic night, it's like you want to put some good stuff at front, but you want to space out your good stuff. You know, you don't want to do it all at the beginning. It's a simple concept, but it, as a game designer, sometimes you lose that perspective because you're like, well, this is really cool. We got to put it there in front to get people. Right. I say, yeah, but you can't leave them without anything until the end of the game. Gotcha. You know? So actually, you know, you guys are talking about Ed and Phil, but my, I, my question kind of was more specific, like whether game developers should, this is really completely just musing and discussion, but should they plan for failure? Like, it feels like, just speaking of, like, the hero's journey in general, and some of our most epic movies and games that we've played, it's almost like uh, an underlying or a foundation to that storyline where we, like, really failed, or we were really, really close to failing or dying completely. Uh, well, that's why games do their, like, rubber banding and stuff, like with racing games and mm-hmm. stuff. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, Freaking Madden games or something, right? When you're ahead, they're like, Yeah, how the, the heck did you catch that in the yard? 
pass. So sometimes that can become transparent and shitty, yeah. right? But that's what they're trying yeah, to do. Yeah. Because if you just blew over somebody, again, that would not be interesting. Like the level, the level of difficulty in that wouldn't even flow. You'd just be amazing. And that's why, again, like we talked about, and Oblivion solved this, but Skyrim, the game before that by Bethesda, <laughs> they had that leveling system where as you leveled up, just everything else in the world leveled up. Right. And it be- and it became, but the problem with that is that if you didn't level your character correctly, you're like, <laughs> I want to be a scholar. <laughs> and then, but you're level fifty, you'll go to the beginning area where you got out of the prison, and there's crabs that will kill you one hit. You know what I mean? Because they're so highly leveled now. You're like, what is that? I spent most of that game running backwards, throwing stuff at people. Like, get away that from me! Too funny. Get away. <laughs> <laughs> and I think throwing a tin yeah. cup, <laughs> and so it's like always a balance between like you want to give that player a feeling of I mean it depends on what you're doing you know if you're masochistic you want to give them some kind of you want to kill them a bunch like Dark Souls but if you want to give them that but even Dark Souls you you're giving them a sense of mastery mm-hmm. and it sucks and dying is part of that and dying is part of that balance of going okay let me take a break even I I praise our Arkham Knight games. Because I'm so, I'm, I admit, I'm so impatient with dying in games, even though Dark Souls is one of my favorite games ever. But just in other games where I feel it's not about that. Once I die, I'm like, I'm going to put this in easy. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but, I start my games and I, off. But what I will do is give it a Because I, I feel like if the mechanic is broken, I don't feel like I get any mastery out of beating it, you know. But an Arkham, I give it so much praise because I would die a couple of times and get so frustrated. And then go, okay, hold on, wait a second. Let me try this. And then I would try a different strategy, and I'd win every time. Yeah. I was like, "That's amazing!" Yeah, that's how I felt I about like Gran Turismo, like the original, I think, or Gran Turismo Two, where you would like they'd have the the courses where you have to basically you have to drive perfectly to like meet the the course in a certain time. So it's like you you became literally became a better driver by doing that. Well, that's a good point you're making. That actually that actually ties it strongly more into the hero's mm-hmm. journey. I'm trying to keep this generic from it, but that because that's part of every story where you have the second act fall, mm-hmm. you know, where every like yeah, you know that thing where it's like the like let's talk about the Avengers. It happens in every. Well, we're gonna see Guardians today. This Guardians of the Galaxy two tomorrow. It'll probably happen mm-hmm. in that. I'm gonna watch for this where it's like you have the heroes and they have a big challenge and they go on the adventures and they have ups and downs and then they decide and they become actualized. Like we're doing this now, you know. Then they're fighting, but then that last moment, they all start losing yeah. again, right? Like in Avengers, everybody, you know, they start shooting the Hulk, everybody gets beat up, and then then something happens, and they all come back yeah, again. Yeah. So that's true. It's like that's part of, like, you kind of want to engineer exactly. death into that sometimes. to go, hey, die, but don't worry, because it can be bad, because you don't want to... I, I personally hate games that are all trial and error. It's like, oh, I had to die there before i did it you know i don't want to feel like that right. but i want to feel like it was my fault that i didn't think of stop that's what dark souls is genius because people say it's brutal but i felt like that game was like i should have waited <laughs> <laughs> i was getting impatient and it was i mean bosses are a different story because you have to die a few times in that game because you have to find out their yeah. patterns and stuff but for the most part when you die in that game it's like oh, i'm an idiot why did i get impatient you know so that that's a genius game design. That's true. It's like you sometimes it's you have to make make them fail in a weird way. But that's a, it's a fine line you're walking there. And that's why when they pull it off, like Dark Souls, it becomes one of the greatest design games of all right. time because you're doing that right. All right, so that we all get that basic premise. You know, it's a basic premise when you talk about it. It's like yeah, things go up and down. They have a crescendo. They end. Blah blah blah. But it's from I want what I want people to take from that is just to analyze it. You know, maybe if you're having trouble and you feel like your game's boring, you test it. Like you said, it doesn't happen in the beginning; it can happen at the end when you're testing. And if it's like this is boring, maybe we take that part out. And you, if you literally analyze it based on numbers or based on just your assessment, um, you get past that. So, thinking in this conversation, the next logical step Jesse Shell talks about in that chapter is that. If you're thinking about this in your left brain, you can be like, okay, this is all fine. <laughs> you're talking about ebbs and flows, but, and you might have mentioned this at being like, but what constitutes an ebb or a flow? <laughs> like, what, what constitutes actual interest? Like, you can't just plan that. You can, I would like to make my game interesting. Okay, there it is. It's interesting. Now, <laughs> you know. Sounds like um, <laughs> Yeah, I will make it interesting. <laughs> And <laughs> and so, but he really talks about to make it interesting. This is the point of the game design. This is the art of it, right? It requires having empathy. It requires having imagination, and it requires your subjective opinion of this. Because everybody might not find your thing interesting, but the part of it that makes your vision of something cool is that you liked it, right? 
and you're finding an audience for people that like the same things that you do, right? Um, that's what I always think of it anyway. So, but there are also interesting ways to, um, you, you need to like it, but there are interesting ways to analyze this again. I love, that's why Jesse Shell's book is so great because, because so much of game design is based on subjective opinion of what you want to make and what you're doing and your vision. There are still interesting ways you can analyze your opinion. Um, and so he, he, he gives a few ways before we end this, I want to talk about a few ways to analyze what you think of as interesting. So he he breaks them down into three different ways. One is inherent interest and a premise. And he breaks it down basically saying that it's basically like, you know, something that's risky is is inherently interesting, more interesting than something that's safe. If you have an unusual thing, it's more interesting. Stranger things is more interesting than a normal thing show, right? That kind of thing. So in that aspect, when you're looking at inherent interest for your game, you're like, oh, I have a... You know, I don't know what it is. It's a puzzle game with blocks in it. You're like, okay, well, that's not inherently interesting because Tetris does it. You know what I mean? Like, is your design this this some of this stuff ties in the design of your game and just planning it? Going, what can I do to make this inherently interesting to somebody? Like, what is Zach and I talk about this all the time? Like, what is that marketing hook? What can you tell people that is that one thing? Like, oh shit, that's inherently interesting. I mean, the inherently interesting thing really ties into the marketing. You know, what can you tell? A website or a blog, mm-hmm. how that they want to play your game. Uh, the second thing is something my favorite. You know, it's poetry of presentation. I love how he puts that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he basically boils down. He says, "Beautiful things are more interesting, right?" Obina's like, "That's why I'm more interesting than you guys." Oh, so wow. what... <laughs> 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 but but this ties in everything. This is why people spend so much time. This is why I get, we'll mention Apple again. I don't calling out the Apple fanboys, but. Why they spent a lot of time with their industrial design, you know, Johnny Ives and those people spent a lot of time in aluminium. really taking that into account. No, what? I was saying aluminium. Oh, yeah, aluminium. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's, it's when it grounds. Yeah, he always has those really crazy videos where he just explains how sexy aluminum is, aluminium <laughs> exactly. is and stuff. But they start, I mean, again, that feels like that's the norm now. Samsung does that now. Everybody does it. But the reason they jumped ahead is because they took that shit seriously, mm-hmm. right? The poetry of presentation. Of like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. Look at these beveled corners. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like it's a phone. It's supposed to be a Nokia phone. Like, no. It's engineering. It's yeah, yeah, that's exactly. But it's all product design. But in a game, too, it's like, again, I've, <laughs> this is another thing. When Zach and I were talking about our game and when we talked about the premise, I was talking about what art style I can make for certain premises. Like, yeah, that's a cool premise. But I, I feel like the art we would make would look like other games. We were literally trying to figure mm-hmm. out a premise where we could make a look that would stand out on its own. Like the poetry presentation would go, oh, shit, that's pretty interesting. So I get this one. That one's neat. So it's inherent interest in the premise, poetry and presentation, how it looks. And the last one is an interest is a really big one for games. It's the projection of you as a player. Meaning the way he re- puts it in the book is the extent to which you compel a guest or user to use the powers of empathy and imagination to put themselves into the experience. And a games, he said, talks about in a movie, it's hard because you're watching other people. So you really have to relate characters and make them relatable and funny and people you recognize. Right. And a game, you have a little bit easier challenge because it's you feel as the player is you. And sometimes the way you can project is like you know, like you guys played um, Wildlands, right? You can customize your person and make them look like you, and some of that stuff goes a long yeah. way. He puts he makes an example of a lottery. He's like a lottery. Somebody winning the lottery is inherently not interesting. A stranger winning the lottery is like who cares? If it's somebody you know, that's more interesting, right? <laughs> right? And if it's you winning the lottery, that's really interesting. <laughs> so it's it's about figuring out how to no matter what you're doing. With a game, even if it's like, oh, you're playing this character, but what can you do to put them in the driver's seat? What can you do to give them the control of that, right? And I guess that some of that's customization, right? With some things, that's how I'd interpret some you of You mean like things. literally customizing characters and stuff? Oh, maybe, yeah. That could work in some games, right? right. Or just like investing yeah, or yeah. getting them invested in the protagonist, I guess. Somehow... Well, I don't know. I guess that's the question. Like, how you get them invested outside of just trying to visually represent yourself as the character? By by making the player... Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like more of RPG, like answering questions to characters you're saying? 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. But n- not what driving uh, like. So, for instance, like in Star Wars: Knights of the Republic, like one of my favorite games ever. Like getting them to feel like they are that character, and they, uh, and and they are actually having a a effect on the in-game world, right? And things in the world are affecting them. That's true. Like, like you said, all, like it, like Sid Meier always talks that the game is a series of interesting choices. That's what you're talking about, right? It's like making mm-hmm. choices. Right. Do you think that's right? why we're seeing like a in I guess an onslaught of more you know survival games more you know more of those open world survival games where you're making basically all the decisions and you could just create what was it sandbox games like a sandbox survival it kind of gets that fight or flight response too you're like i gotta survive exactly. right? and, and you're making all the decisions and affecting your character and your life i guess and your world with each decision so you know, it's interesting and yeah that's what i have <laughs> if you guys ever watched sunny in philadelphia yeah. I, I put this quote in there the, the guy glenn in that show in the first couple seasons he had the best <laughs> he talked about and this relates to this game design thing he's talked about he's like dream somebody was trying to tell him about a dream he had and he's like man i don't care he's like don't tell me about your dreams he's like dreams are like pictures unless he's like unless i'm in it or somebody's naked i don't care <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's like this it's like people don't that's the biggest thing i always i always talk about movies and i talk about games like i have told zach this before it's like my test of like i'll, I'll get even graphic it's like why the fuck do i care about this mm-hmm. Right, like people start movies and it's like it's in the land of something. It's like I don't care. Right, <laughs> you know, it's like I don't care about this. Who cares? Who cares? What is this? What is this? I don't care. Like I felt like the first Mass Effect game. I thought that the first Mass Effect game, it took twenty hours to get to the that game. The story of that game is super interesting, but the first ten hours are impenetrable. Mm-hmm. Like it starts and you're on a mission and you go to this big citadel and it's like Star Trek and it's like why do I care about this at all? Like, and that's what I'm saying. Some games, I don't know if they think about that. It's like, because when you think about it, I get maybe as a designer, you're like, oh, we got this amazing story. Mm-hmm. We have all these cool systems. And you forget the first 10 hours of that experience aren't that amazing. Though. Right. Just like you know. the scene setting that took too long. It didn't hook you. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you don't get into the meat. But I, I wonder if that's intentional or just because... When you look, I know we've looked at projects and we're working on our own projects, and this is the big deal. I mean, this is why I want to talk about this today, just all in general. It's just because as you're making systems, and as Zach and I were talking about our game, we're making all these systems, but unless you take a step back and go, okay, these are all super cool and game designery and crunchy and all these things, but how would somebody who doesn't know anything about this come into this? How would they experience it? And if it doesn't make any sense or it's just very obtuse, then that you have a problem, I think. Depending on what your audience is, you know. I mean, if you're doing to a bigger audience that should know some things, but you, it's more about thinking about what your audience's journey, depending on whatever their experience level is, what your audience's journey through that material is, and not yeah. just getting in your head because you can do that, you know, with just game design stuff. Cool. Um, and the last thing too, just real quick, with those three types of things: the inherent interest, the poetry and presentation, and the projection, which I think is pretty cool. You can also analyze different games with those three meters. Um, so you talk about, let's talk about Tetris. He has Tetris in the book. You say, Tetris is a bunch of blocks. Inherently, it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? The poetry presentation is just blocks. Not interesting. The, but the projection is that I'm making every decision, every moment, and everything depends on me, and it's very stressful, and it's tightly wound, and it's fun. The projection wins the day there. That's why the game's amazing. So that's kind of in, like what what some have said. I've heard another podcast talk about Tetris as being one of the best games, if not the best game of all time, purest game. Right? Think about that. Even that game fails in those first two levels of interest, right. but it just soars out of the park in projection. So a lot of other things, you know, you can do that. You think that's with a, Halo, a failing know. of uh, some of the newer games coming out that they? I think they're. I, for me, I think a lot of them are inherently interesting. Well, some of them are, uh, and the but the presentation for a lot of games nowadays are always like almost top notch nowadays, uh, with you know the the tech that's coming out and just the level of quality people are putting in these games. Uh, do you think the failing is mainly in the projection and our inability to, I guess, affect change in this world or at least get it invested? Well, that's, that- 
That is weird that you say that because you look at these three things and you're like, yeah, they're three equal parts. But now as you say that, like as you think about Tetris and you think about just games in general or just just art in general, basically, you can get rid of all those other things too. But if you have amazing projection, that's all that matters. But yeah, I think what you're saying is that I think you can manufacture inherent interest right. in something. Like this is a fun premise. It's like space squids and lasers and space right. squids. And then you're like, oh, and then you go, we have... A hundred artists that are That's awesome. That's true. And it, we can make this amazing. But if you don't have that game design, if you don't have that magic element that brings somebody into it, it doesn't That's do true. Anything. That's what I, this is so random, but I, I think of the same way as I look at, when I look at like shows on Netflix and movies on Netflix, like most, most shows oh, yeah, are like inherently, right. can be inherently interesting. It's like, oh, that seems like an interesting thing to try out. And then when you try it out and you're not getting invested in the characters, the storyline doesn't move. It's like some of the Marvel series later it, on. Basically. Exactly. And like the presentation and effects and visual effects and even cool. it could be great, yeah, but I don't get invested in the action or the storyline. So I drop off and stop watching it. So I think yeah, it, it, it kind of does boil down to amazing projections that really you know, gets uh, an end user, I guess, invested. Because that's how we're geared. You can hear somebody tell a right. story that's amazing. Right. And be enthralled by it and just like have a life changing experience. Somebody told you this incredible story, mm-hmm. but that's inherently not interesting. Somebody talking right. to you and it's poetry. There's no presentation there at all. He's just saying right. something to you or he or she. So, yeah, I think projection is a when you go into an experience of narrative or just especially interactiveness, because I mean, you have to feel like it, with a movie. Sometimes you can be like, yeah, this is a fun action movie. It was fun. I didn't care about anybody. It's like The Rock or something. I don't care about those people <laughs> on The Rock. You know? But it's stupid and it's fun. You know, or like a kung fu movie or something. It's like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm Jackie Jan, but like I had fun. But I feel with the game, it's like you have to, because it's not, because with a game, it's where it goes off the rails and gets a little mind bending mm-hmm. because it's not traditionally what we're thinking about with a movie. It's not relatable to the character. You need to just feel, uh, a bit of agency in that world like the tetris the reason it's projection is there's no story but you feel you're part of it completely. actually quick question then you know with the uh uh coming to i guess fruition of vr and ar do you think that's going to put projection this aspect of projection on another level where that's now it's all about presentation and inherent interest oh that's a good point i that's a good point as you said that i just realized mm-hmm. that it's like because inherently just doing that goes like 50 percent in the projection area because you're exactly there. you're in that moment but the problems we have is the present pro to your presentation exactly. right because sometimes like oh that doesn't look real i don't but again that affects pres- projection i guess too of you being that's there but but projection you're right the vr has an advantage and that's why maybe i mean it's probably even just the idea, I did VR in like the mid '90s at Dave and Buster's, and I paid like fifteen bucks again the pterodactyl thing. Yeah, yeah I remember. Over. And I was like, "This is amazing!" And it was like a hundred pound headset or whatever. Like, but it's just projection. Nothing was great about it. But I think that the the idea of VR survived so long just because of when you get into it, when you get in that stupid first uh, dev kit one in the Oculus and that Tuscan. Villa oh, thing, yeah, like, <laughs> I can see the window frame, and it's right there. Right. It looks like garbage, but it's like right there, you know. <laughs> I can see every so. pixel, or, or the falling leaves scare the crap yeah, out of you. Jesus, your head. Oh, hell. <laughs> so yeah, that's a that's a, that's an interesting point. Again, that's another subject we talk about later. How VR affects that stuff because that is a good point. That VR helps mm. so much with projection because. If, if if games were about being immersed and feeling like you're there, just putting on the headset and looking around, not even playing the game could already take you eighty percent right. there. But what I what I've seen so well uh, in a lot of games that are in VR is they tend to lack in that uh, projection area, like in in the story. Well, then when you start it. to move, you're like, oh wait, this is wrong. Now I'm out of the projection. Yeah. Right? The suspension yeah. of disbelief, I guess. That's why like the concept down. of VR handles mm-hmm. you know projection but the actual execution sometimes right. for now we'll see yeah well it'll only get better we'll it'll be pumping into our brains before long oh that's gonna be amazing all right so i think that was cool this is just a good primer on interest curves and hero heroic game design i guess it's a good like i always get so self-conscious when we talk about this stuff because i feel like as we say this it seems obvious but it, this stuff wasn't always obvious to me but it also 
the things that are the most obvious sometimes you never actually apply to yourself. Exactly. And I think you, you, you know. calling mm-hmm. out like you can use the hero journey or just these as- several aspects of interest even to analyze your own game and find where it's lacking, find where you need to add ebbs and flows or remove ebbs or make it more difficult. There's like a lot of aspects just during this conversation that even hit me and I was like, oh yeah, I didn't even think to think of my game in that manner. So it's always helpful, I think. I appreciate it. Yeah, and you, yeah, and you don't have to use it like they always talk about the hero's journey and leaving with this interest script stuff. It doesn't have to be a formula, but like the stuff, a lot of advice, all the advice we give in the show, and in this instance, is the idea that if you're doing, if you're making your game and it's working for you, go ahead, dude, <laughs> get on with you. But like, if you're having trouble, this stuff works as a great toolbox to analyze and go. I'm having problems here. Is this a flat curve in this interest curve, or do I need to put up a little bit of, you know, do I need to make them fail here, or do I need them succeed here? The stuff works as a good toolbox to try to amp up parts where trouble spots in your game. So, all right. We, that being said, we will take our ebb in this flow and take a break and come back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, before we go, we have to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about our Debug Lounge. That's our Facebook group where we have a bunch of awesome people in there contributing every day, sharing stuff. It's a, if you just search for the Debug Lounge on Facebook, you'll find it, and we'll add you to it. We say it's exclusive, but it's not exclusive. We'll add anybody. that If you're an ass, we'll kick you out of it. Right. But besides that, we won't. We haven't had any bad people in no, there. That's been great. It's like we have almost 1,000 people in there now, and everybody's super cool, and everybody shares their stuff, and nobody – spams it too much you know like it's a pretty loose structure now you can share your game you're working on you can share some we have some questions going on we have people like you know really talk about the game jam going on every weekend and stuff so it's a really cool group of people in there so search for the debug lounge in there and just join that if you yes and also just to to prod those folks that are sitting on the on the sidelines thinking whether they should join or not just do it i feel like there's a lot of people that listen and say hey it's been like six months and i haven't joined and now i'm joining and i think they always i guess are, are glad they joined so i would just go to facebook yeah you don't even have to say anything at first just join you just and join and read they're like oh i like these guys and then you'll say something yeah <laughs> yeah it's low pressure. Exactly. Low pressure. Except for we're pressing you right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about the Patreon? I'll talk about that. Uh, so if you guys like what we're doing on the show, uh, like what we've got going, we're um, on patreon.com slash the debug log. So if you want to just support us, give us some of your cheese, your hard-earned money, help us uh, continue what we're doing here and continue to grow in the show, grow in our community, growing our tribe, as someone put it today on this lounge. Uh, just go to our Patreon, and we're still again adding perks slowly and surely, adding more perks. Uh, so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. As we have time, we'll do that. We got a couple new Patreons this month. We'll talk about them next episode because we didn't have that ready this time. But <laughs> they, we we thank everybody who joins that, and we again we'll have some more fun stuff as the summer goes on. Right. All right. That was fun, guys. That was, was. good. Yeah. We have a little. I like these little these alternating between interviews and uh, Eduardo's series of design, design patterns, patterns. Yes. and these are this little design game design corners we have. These are fun. <laughs> All right. Well, in the meantime, you can catch me on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Curry, and also today I just finished a preliminary version of Zach and I's AngerheadGames.com. You can check that out. Hopefully we'll have a couple of posts coming there. And we said that like four episodes ago. We never did anything. But we had that up and you can. we're going to start putting some pictures and uh, just progress as we work on our game because now we actually have some visual stuff to show and some little bits of animated GIFs or something on there. But check it out. That's AngerheadGames.com. Sweet. Thanks for completely interrupting our Twitter thing. No, that's what we do. It's not Twitter. It's a plug. Where can you find you? Plug all right, all right, all right. That's all you can find me on Twitter at O-Beans. That's O with an H, Beans with a Z. Um, what else yeah. you got? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. You don't want to mention anything yet, so it's fine. Uh, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. When you have that, you'll talk and, about right. it. So. <laughs> and you can find me at WookieJumper42. And what Andrew yeah. said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> Eduardo. We should have content up there soon. So I, I I'm taking uh, like I've I've had uh, archives of of stuff that I've been working on. So we'll be posting all that uh, as quick as we can. Eduardo and Ryan abandoned us. Don't listen to them. <laughs> Anyways, Ryan just moved back to Atlanta. We didn't mention that. Wow. I'll mention I that right we were now. Waiting for him to say it. Yeah, I'll just mention Whoa, it. I'll mention yeah, it now. Like... <laughs> <laughs> He's too slow getting internet, but we'll have him on next week. Hopefully, we'll talk about it. So until next time, we'll see you. See ya. game would have to follow that structure like the cutscene 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 one pass oh, cutscene yeah right yeah <laughs> that's that is something in the oven maybe that's why it's there's a truck dump <laughs> into a Venus living room right now <laughs>